God, thank you just for the opportunity to gather together and to gather together freely. Uh, God, I just thank you for already some of the truths that we have sung and reminded ourselves of together. God, we thank you even for this opportunity to serve. And thank you that you are a God who gave us the perfect example of what service looks like. But God, now as we, as we look to this conversation about how you are real and how you apply in what seems like all of life, God, I pray that the truths that you want to convey today, that you would convey those into our hearts. God, I pray that every person in this room would be open to you speaking this morning in whatever way is necessary. Thank you. Amen. Is the message of Jesus relevant for everyone? That's the question I want to start out by asking this morning. Is the message of Jesus relevant for everyone? Relevant even in our 21st century world or in our modern and enlightened Western culture? You see, some, including myself, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And so, yes, I would argue he is relevant. But others are like, well, Jesus was just the good man. And then others would say, well, he's actually a pretty controversial figure, a historical figure who's controversial. And so I want to ask this question. I want for us to kind of unpack this question today. Is Jesus relevant? Because I want to get down to really the nuts and bolts of this and say, is he relevant to you? to your life, to your situation, to your relationships, to your marriage, to your parenting, to your finances, to your job? Is he relevant to your life and to your context? Context is kind of the key word that we're going to be looking at here today. And we're going to see here how the message of Jesus forms and molds into a variety of different contexts, how it applies in a whole bunch of different situations and scenarios. And I want you to see, I'm praying that you see today that he even forms and molds into your own context and situation. You see, context is a very important thing and and a thing that you have to be aware of. Think about with me what would happen. You guys have probably heard stories of this type of thing happening. Imagine with me, that there is the headline band for ACL getting onto the main stage, okay? So they're getting onto the main stage, and there's just thousands of people there, right? You guys picturing this? And the lead singer for the band, full of energy, jumps up onto the stage and says, Good evening, Oklahoma! How do you think that would go? It'd go over like a lead balloon. It's here in Austin. It's in Texas, right? That's kind of offensive if you're from Texas that this guy's saying, good evening, Oklahoma. Obviously, this guy has no idea where he is, and he's saying something offensive because he's, he's not realizing his context. And so what I want to put to you guys this morning is that context is hugely important, and we all, are, we all work, we all live, we all move within a variety of different t- contexts, Contextualization is something that we're always taking a part of. We're understanding and adapting to our different environments, and it's very important that we do that. Right now, whether you realize it or not, I'm contextualizing. You see, I'm speaking to you my own version of American English. I was born up, brought up speaking Australian English, and so I'm contextualizing right now. There's certain words that I will choose today Without even really thinking about it, there's certain words that I will not use in my vocabulary in America because I know that you won't understand what they are. There's others that I try and stay away from because I know that it's a distraction. 
I'll give you an example. If I said to you, hey, where's the dunny? Some of you'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? I'm asking where's the bathroom, okay? So I don't say that because I know that you don't understand that. We're in the wrong context. I could say, hey, you know, I'm going to have a tomato sandwich afterwards. And you guys would be like, oh, we just said tomato. And then you're distracted (laughs) thinking about that. You're thinking about that or the fact that I said aluminium, you know, instead of the way that you say it. And so there's certain things that I steer away from in conversation. The funny thing is, when I go back to Australia, automatically, without even really thinking about it, all the other words start to come back out. It's kind of funny. It just automatically happens because I'm contextualizing into the environment in which I'm at. And so what we're going to see here today, I hope, isn't just a theoretical idea and conversation about contextualization, although that may be interesting. What I want to do is link this conversation back to what we're talking about, Jesus and his relevance. And so what we're going to talk about today is gospel contextualization, okay? So let's look at those two words first and foremost and make sure that we have a clear working definition on those so that we can move forward. Gospel. When we say that, what do we mean? Well, I've got a very, very streamlined definition for you. This is not exhaustive, but this is a good starting point. Gospel. The gospel is the good news that God has rescued and is restoring creation in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Contextualization is the translating of ideas and concepts into understandable and appropriate, sorry, understandable terms appropriate to the audience. Now, this may just sound like a good combo of two churchy words, gospel contextualization, but think about what does that actually mean? We're really asking with this question, with these words, is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, truly good news to you and me sitting here in Austin, Texas, 2016, And at the same time, is it good news to somebody living in a remote island in Indonesia? And at the same time, was it good news to somebody 2,000 years ago living in Jerusalem? And I would argue very strongly with you today that yes, it is. And that's what makes it so amazing. The gospel is amazing in that it adapts and forms into all these different types of environments and is completely appropriate and meets needs in all of those places. And so this morning, I think that this conversation about gospel contextualization is huge. It's a really big uh, topic for us to cover and to think through. And so this morning, I just want to give you some thoughts on that. Firstly, if you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure where you stand as, as whether you're a Christ follower or not, I just want to say thank you for being here and engaging in this conversation. Like, it's awesome that we have people that would come and, and engage in this conversation about Christ and about spiritual things. That's cool. But what I want to say to you, if you're not a Christ follower this morning, is that you have an opportunity today, and I want you to look for it, to see how Jesus translates across all cultures, across all environments, and to consider today how the gospel may even apply to your very own life, okay? So if you're not a Christian, that's what I want you to think about. Now, if you are a Christian, I want you to think about how you are called to be an agent of contextualization, okay? I want you to think about how God may be calling you to be somebody who would spread the message of Jesus in the environments in which God has uniquely placed you. The Scripture tells us, as Christians, we are called to be His light. We're called to be His uh, representatives. My favorite word used to describe that is We're told that we're his ambassadors, okay? So whatever place we find ourselves, we're Christ's representatives. Think about that. What does that mean? That means we're the carriers of a hope, of a message, of a light. 
And so this morning, as you think about that, I want you to think about how are you called to be an agent of contextualization? How are you called to be an ambassador for Christ? Now, the Bible itself is a book that definitely needs to be read in context, and it actually has a lot to say about context. I want to read for you a scripture. I don't want you to turn there. We'll just read it together. It will be on the screen. It says this, although I am a free man and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. This is a statement made by a man who was used powerfully by God as a missionary. His name is Paul, and we've been studying the life of Paul and his companions as they've traveled around using, spreading the word of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. So this summer, we've said we're going to do this road trip series, right, where we're looking at different ways that God used powerfully these men to start the movement of Jesus across the entire known world at that time. And so today, as we're traveling throughout this series, we're going to see how these guys continue to, to preach the gospel, to disciple people, how, to, how they're planning churches. And specifically, we're going to get to see that today in this case study of contextualization when we look at this significant city of history called Athens, okay? So we're going to look at the city of Athens together today and how Paul approached this brand new city. So I want you guys now to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 with me. I'd really encourage you to read along with me. I always feel like having something in front of you to read is helpful. So if you want to use your Bible app or grab one of the Bibles in front of you, that's great. But we're going to be parked in Acts 17 today. Acts 17, and we're going to start in verse 16. (coughs) Excuse me. We'll read a little bit, and then we'll talk a little bit, and then we'll read some more, okay? Acts 17, verse 16 says this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Let's stop there for a second and talk about this. Where we begin the scripture, it tells us, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Okay, speaking of context, let's get a little context here. What, who was, why was Paul waiting and whom was he waiting for? Paul, we know, is on his second missionary journey, okay? So Paul took several missionary journeys. He's on his second one. It's about AD 50, and he's waiting for his two traveling companions, Silas and Timothy. The reason that he's separated from them, and this should not come as a surprise to you guys, especially considering some of the things we've talked about in the series so far, the reason that they're waiting is because people are trying to kill Paul, okay? Paul has been whisked away from the environment he was in because people were trying to kill him there, okay? So he's gone on ahead and he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to catch up and to join him in the city of Athens. Now, Athens is a very important city. And I want to give you kind of just a couple of very quick things about Athens. The Easton's Bible Dictionary says of Athens that it's the most celebrated city of the ancient world. It's the seat of Greek literature and art during the golden period of Grecian history. Now, that golden period was about 400 years before Paul was there, but it's still a great city, okay? Not quite as great as it had been at 
400 years earlier, but it's a great, great city that he's in the middle of. And by great, I mean just large and impressive and uh, an important deal, okay? So Paul's there. Uh, The other thing that I found very interesting about this is the time that Paul's there, it's already a 3,000-year-old city, okay? They've got human activity dating back to 3,000 BC in Athens, okay? So this is an ancient city by the time that Paul gets there, which I find that just kind of interesting. But Paul doesn't decide to just sit there and take a rest or to take a vacation or even to take a history tour, which I'm sure would have been interesting. But he he decides that he's going to observe the city. And as he observes the city, what we see is that his spirit is stirred. I want you to read it again with me, verse 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, that word troubled in the scripture is apparently, I haven't ever tried, but apparently very hard to translate, okay? So there's a whole bunch of meaning wrapped up into that word troubled, and I won't do a great job of articulating it all today, but the quickest way that I can tell you about it is basically picture the God of the Old Testament, okay? So Old Testament Bible, and if you read through the Old Testament Bible, you read stories of how the people... God's chosen people of Israel would worship other gods and God would feel how he would feel. That's kind of how Paul felt, okay? So there's this combination of sadness and upset and anger, and yet at the same time, compassion and at the same time, some jealousy. That's the emotions that Paul's feeling, okay? So there's a lot wrapped up into that word troubled, okay? So Paul's there, and, and what I really want for us to see here this morning, more than anything, is that Gospel, we're going to talk about gospel contextualization in three main thoughts. First one is this, gospel contextualization begins with God stirring our hearts. I don't want you to think this morning that gospel contextualization is about me giving you a few healthy tips on how to contextualize the message of Jesus in whatever place he's he's put you God has to be, His Holy Spirit has to be working in our hearts and stirring us before we try and contextualize the gospel in whatever environments He's placed us. It begins and finishes with God. I want you guys to see that He's got to be in and through this process. This isn't about just getting smart on contextualization and being relevant in whatever environment He puts us. No, this is about God moving in our hearts. So as God starts to move in Paul's heart, how does this begin to work out, practically speaking? Well, we see that Paul begins to engage with people, and especially engaging with people in the marketplace, the agora, okay? Now, uh, I want you guys to think with me about what the marketplace in Athens is like. Don't picture in your head, this is what I thought of, don't picture a couple of guys standing around in aprons and some fruit stands and, you know, some hanging meat. Like, when I say marketplace, that's not what we're talking about here, okay? We're not talking about, like, you know, the the fruit market down on the corner. What you're talking about is one of the greatest cities in history and the very epicenter of that, that city. So you've got a little bit of everything going on. You've got some art going on. You've got people creating art. You've got some, uh, you know, a Roman barracks over here. You've got this huge temple over here. You've got some idols over here. You've got people milling about around talking about different ideas and concepts. Yes, you've got trade going on as well. You've got courts of law and all of these things going on. Really, it's the melting pot of commerce, trade, art, and entertainment, okay? So picture that on a large scale, and that's where Paul finds himself. And as he finds himself there, he just starts to engage with everyone. It's not like he like, just 
starts with a few people. No, he engages with everyone. The, the scripture makes it clear. He starts, you know, talking with the Jews. He talks with the God-fearing Gentiles, the people in the marketplace, just anybody who's in the marketplace. And then finally, it tells us the intellectuals and the philosophers. And what I want you guys to see, what I want for us to see here this morning is that the gospel breaks down borders. Race, religion, socioeconomic standing, age and status are not barriers for the gospel. Isn't that good news this morning? The gospel engages all people and meets their deepest need. That's essentially what we're getting at. I'll say that again. The gospel engages all people and meets their deepest need. And I think that's awesome that it does that. In engaging these philosophers, it's kind of interesting to see their response. Paul's there engaging these guys, and I'm sure they hear Paul talking about, you know, the resurrection of Jesus and this only one true God and all this stuff. That would have sounded very foreign to these guys, and they would have been like, what is this guy talking about? It's interesting to read their response. I don't know if you guys thought that was funny, but I do. It says in the text that their response is, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Pseudo doesn't usually mean good, right? It means, yeah, he's kind of got a little bit of intelligence. You know, what's this guy trying to say? You know, and so Paul's there and he's engaging these guys and he seems like an anomaly to these thinkers. And so that leads him to being taken to a very important place. He's taken by these philosophers in the next few verses that we're going to skip over to a place called the Oropagus or also known as Mars Hill. I've got a quick note that I jotted down out of a commentary about this. It says this, The Oropagus is the oldest and most famous court in Athens with jurisdiction in moral, religious, and civic matters. So here we are in this really important city, and Paul is placed in front of the most important people in that city, which is kind of interesting to think about. I want you to picture this scenario with me. Okay, you guys, have you guys seen a picture of Athens? You guys know the city of Athens, right? It's, it's pretty famous, yeah. So you've got this famous kind of rock ledge, this hill known as the Acropolis. It's like this big thing that kind of sits out above the city. And the famous picture that you always see of Athens is the Acropolis with the temple on top of it known as the Parthenon. That was built specifically for the god Athena, okay? So there is the Parthenon. And then if you were standing up on the Acropolis looking down on the city, the rest of the city, what you would see is the marketplace over here, okay? And between the marketplace where all that stuff's going on and the Acropolis is this other little rock outcrop. And on that rock outcrop, which again is kind of half the height between the two, is where the Acropolis, all these thinkers, these important men would gather and they would meet. That's where they took Paul. So I want you to picture that as we get to read what happens next, because there's Paul in the shadow of this ginormous temple with this marketplace down below him, talking with these very, very important men of the city. And what we see that happens next is just an awesome picture of contextualization. I dabble in a little bit of photography. Maybe I should say I'm a pseudo-photographer, okay? So I dabble in a little photography, and uh, one of the things that I've learned in photography is you've got a wide-angle shot. Do you guys know what a wide-angle shot is when you've got a a camera? It takes a lot of information in, okay? So it gets a wide angle, okay? So what I think this scripture is great in, in that in a very short space, it gives us a wide-angle shot of how Paul approaches a brand-new city. It's like it takes in a lot of information. It tells us he's there, he's troubled, he engages all of these different people. And what happens next in the scripture, when we go to verse 22 here in a second, it's like that lens is zoomed right in and it gives us a very specific conversation 
that we have like word for word. We know what, what Paul said to these men as he approaches them. We know how he specifically contextualized. And I want you guys to see what happens next because it's pretty awesome. So we're going to read on in this story in verse 22 and see how Paul addresses these open-minded philosophers. Here we go. Verse 22. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring then, we shouldn't think that, his divine, that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Let's stop there for a second. What we see here is that Paul begins to approach these open-minded philosophers. Now, if we go back and read the verses that we just skipped over, it tells us that these guys would just like to, a lot of people in Athens just like to sit around and talk about philosophies. They were very open-minded. They had a lot of different thoughts. My dad used to have a saying. You know how your dads have sayings? My dad had a saying where he would say, if you're too open-minded, your brains will fall out. And uh, that was kind of one of his things that, you know, he'd always spout off. And you're like, okay, Dad, yeah, we've heard that one. Um, But it it seems appropriate to these guys, especially when we get to see soon how they respond. But these guys are very, you know, they pride themselves on being open-minded and hearing these ideas and these philosophies. And so Paul's there engaging with these guys. But as we think about that, I want you to think about that, yeah, these guys are open-minded. They have a lot of idolatry going on. Like they've got idols, you've got to picture it all over the city. There was actually a sarcastic saying amongst the Romans that said it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man, okay? So that's kind of the culture and the world in which Paul finds himself. And yet it kind of, as I've been thinking about it this week, I've kind of been reminded of our own culture here in Austin and our own culture here in Western, the Western world when I think about this. Because these guys pride themselves on being open-minded A lot of people I talk to in our world and in our culture pride themselves on being open-minded, on on, on having, you know, hey, whatever path is good for you. I'm I'm a very tolerant person. You hear people talking like that, right? And so this world in which we're looking at, this world in Athens, is not too far removed from our own world. And you say, well, they had a lot of idols. We have a lot of idols. They just look different. It's not a statue beside the road. Well, not in the same form or sense, right? We have the idols of sex, of money, of power that we worship all the time in our world and in our culture in many different forms. And so I just want to encourage you guys this morning as we read this, don't think, oh, this is some ancient world, this ancient culture. Things haven't changed too much. And as we read this, I want you to see how Paul engages this this culture in a very interesting way. First of all, he doesn't condemn them. 
Paul doesn't get up and say, hey, guys, you got idols going everywhere. What's going on? You got to clean this up. You know, there's only one true God, and he says there's no other gods. And so all this idolatry is sinful, and you're evil, and you're all going to hell. No, he doesn't get up and, and give them this soapbox spiel. He says, men of Athens. He addresses them very politely and then jumps into his conversation. The other thing that's interesting is that he doesn't begin by quoting Scripture or Jewish concepts. If you look at other speeches that, that Paul gives or other sermons that Paul gives, when he's talking to Jewish people, you know, he'll start talking about Abraham or Moses or some of the patriarchs or the Torah or the Ten Commandments. But Paul doesn't do any of that because he realizes his audience doesn't know any of that. These are Greeks living in Athens. And so he contextualizes the message. He uses their idolatry. I don't know if you picked up on that. It's pretty awesome. He says, hey, I found an idol, and I think I can tell you about who that God is. He says it was an unknown God. He's like, I know who the unknown God is. It's Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God who sent his son Jesus. And so he begins to expound on what that means, and he he starts to elaborate on that. And he's basically saying, hey, he doesn't even live in a statue. He's much bigger than that. He's over all of this. It's cool to see, too, how clear and concise Paul is. He realizes, hey, I've got this moment of opportunity in front of some of these very important men. I'm not going to, like, just flat, make it all flowery and try and talk around a whole bunch. He's like, I'm going to just cut to the chase, right? And so he's very clear and concise, and yet at the same time, he does something that's very important that we need to learn from. He holds up both grace and truth in his conversation. It's hard to have true grace without truth. And it's hard to have truth without really having grace. And Paul holds both of those things in a beautiful tension as he talks with these guys. Uh, I read this week uh, in, in some notes about this passage, it says that virtually every line of Paul, Paul's message contradicts the religious views of the people that he's talking to, his audience. There was, he basically starts out <coughs> excuse me, by saying, there's only one God. And as he says that there's only one God, they're surrounded by a bunch of idols, okay? So he's saying, hey, there's only one God. And then he goes on to say, hey, and he doesn't dwell in temples. There's the Parthenon up behind him, like in the shadow of the greatest temple of all of history. He's saying these things. And so he's being very truthful, but we sense that there's a great sense of grace with what he's saying as well. Finally, and I think maybe this is the most awesome part of all of it, he uses their own writings on them. He speaks their language. If you go to verse 28 with me, you'll get to see what I'm talking about. Verse 28, let's look at it one more time. It says, for in him we live and move and exist. That is a part of a thought of a poem that was written about Zeus. He takes it and adapts it to talk about God. And then he goes on. So he says, um, in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. That again is another poem written about the God Zeus. And Paul is saying, no, 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 Zeus isn't king. You've got to realize this God I'm talking about, he's the one whose offspring we are. And it's really cool to think that Paul is contextualizing as he's making this so appropriate to their audience as he's using their own language to communicate with them. And so what I want for us to see here in the second main thought this morning is this. Gospel contextualization, I'm going to get that right, grows as we love and engage people in a relevant way. So the question that seems appropriate is, what does this look like for you? What does it look like for me to engage people in a relevant way? What does it mean to be relevant with the gospel? 
Well, I think that changes and morphs a lot. From conversation, from day to day, it changes and morphs a lot. Maybe it means beginning a conversation with somebody at a coffee shop about Pokemon Go. That's the cool thing, right? If you don't know what that is, look it up, okay? It's, uh, it's the latest and greatest thing that's out there, okay? Maybe that's being contextualized and having conversation that would lead to a relationship, a friendship, and eventually a spiritual conversation about Jesus. Maybe gospel contextualization means us doing something with our neighbors on Labor Day weekend, finding a common ground to say, hey, we're going to grill out or we're going to go and do this together. Maybe gospel contextualization means having a conversation with a friend about Lord of the Rings that leads straight into a spiritual conversation. There are so many different facets and ways that this can work. But what I want you to see is back to the first thought is that we have to have the Holy Spirit leading us in and through this process. The Holy Spirit is key to this. He has to stir us and then enable us to contextualize in the way that he's calling us to. I was thinking about a conversation that I had with a guy once that was really interesting. I was working for my uncle uh, doing construction work, and he had a contractor come out, a painter, who was working with us. And I remember one day there was this time uh, where he and I were working in the same building together, um, just the two of us. And as we were there, we had this amazing spiritual conversation out of nothing. Like it was one of those conversations that just popped up. And this was right when I was, this was like one of my first ever conversations with somebody that wasn't a Christian about like spiritual things. And I remember having this conversation and being really nervous and excited all at the same time because it just had really come out of nowhere. I'd been praying for opportunities, but you know, here it was. And so having this conversation and uh, I remember walking away from that conversation really excited about all that had just happened in that conversation. And, and I really sensed in that conversation that God had led me through what to say to my friend Scully. And so as we're talking, um, sorry, as I, as I was leaving and as I was thinking about it, I was like, man, that was a great conversation. I was just thanking God. Thank you, God. Would you help those words that we talked about to really, you know, impact his heart and his life? And I remember trying to think back about what I had just said to him. And I couldn't think of it. Like, I couldn't think back to what it was. And I really, honestly, I believe his Holy Spirit was leading me and guiding me through that conversation. Because at the time, I remember talking to him and being like, wow, yeah, that's, that's good. You know, like, and, and so I just want to encourage you. That's what we're talking about here is really allowing God's Holy Spirit to lead us. About a week from now, uh, a team of eight of us, including myself, will have just touched down in Mexico for our mission trip. And I would really ask you guys to pray for us as we get to go, uh, uh, the team from the church here that we're taking. So there's eight of us that are going to be there in Mexico, and we're going to get to do something in Mexico that I just love doing. We're going to go and do something we call street evangelism. And the cool thing about that is it's so perfectly contextualized to where we're going. So we're going to this place out on the outskirts of Cancun. And this place really doesn't even exist on a map because it's not officially there. It's just a whole bunch of like little lean-tos that people have put together and they live inside these dirt floors. Some of them have electricity, some of them don't. If they do have electricity, it's like literally just hooked up onto a wire on a branch, okay? So just picture that. There's a lot of need. Like there's need everywhere you look where we're going. And the cool thing is, as we, we've found, as we walk down the street and as we just go and we talk to people, if we just talk to them and listen a little bit and ask, hey, what do you need? And have conversations with them about Jesus. There is so much opportunity in that, in that moment to love them with the love of Jesus and to pray for them and to serve them in that way. And through that, we've seen God answer prayers. We've seen people come to faith. 
And that's totally contextualized to that environment. There's needs, and so we're going to pray for needs, okay? Imagine with me if we did that here in Austin. You just start knocking on doors. Hey, you know, can I pray for you? What do you need? Knocking on a door. People like slam the door. Nobody does that in Mexico where we go because there's a lot of need. People are open to us talking about the hope that we have in Jesus. But the issue that we find in Greece, back to the scripture, Acts 17, was much like the one that we have here in modern America where people just didn't realize their need. We're going to get to see that as they respond. Okay, so we're going to pick up in verse 30. Remember, Paul's in the middle of his sermon. He's about to come to like the clincher. He's getting to the close of his message in verse 30. Let's read. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear more, for, sorry, we'd like to hear from you again about this. Then Paul left their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, including Dinosus, the Oropagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. It was noted to me this week as I was reading and studying that Paul's message contained all the basic elements of the gospel. As he talks to these guys, he condemned their idolatry. He was gracious about it, but he was truthful. He showed them their need for repentance. He argued the certainty of God's judgment, and he offered salvation through Christ's resurrection. And so what I want you guys to see here this morning, and maybe this is the most important part, Gospel contextualization ultimately brings us to the cross and empty tomb. And I want to be honest with you guys this morning. This is the part where I balk. This is the part that I struggle with. If I'm gut level honest with you guys this morning, I can, you know, I can get excited about God stirring my heart. I can even get excited about being, you know, nice to people, loving them and being relevant and, you know, maybe talking to them about spiritual things. But when it comes down to like the, the, the point of having that conversation about Jesus and about the empty tomb and talking about how he, he was raised from the dead and his blood that cleanses us from our sins, like all of that, like sometimes I balk at having that conversation because I fear, I fear looking foolish. And that shouldn't surprise us. If you look to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is God's power to us who are being saved. Verse 27 says, instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And so what I really want for us to see here this morning, myself included, is that it's worth being foolish because it means freedom for some. If the cost of freedom for someone is us looking foolish, it's totally worth it. As we look at Paul and the response of these guys at the Areopagus, it's not like all of them just all of a sudden fall down and say, yes, we need Jesus. Like, yeah, we only see one or two coming to faith. The rest of them ridiculed him. Said, what are you talking about? Resurrection? You're a fool. And yet there's a value to us being true to who God is calling us to be as we contextualize. God used Paul that day, and it's worth celebrating. 
all we need to do is to be faithful to proclaim the gospel with our lives and with our lips, and then to entrust the results to God. So what's the purpose of all our conversation this morning? What's the end goal of our conversation this morning? Well, the purpose is to remind us, first and foremost, of the amazing grace found in the gospel. I hope that today, this is my hope, is that today as we've talked about how the gospel applied to these guys in Athens, and then as we're reminded of how it applies to our own lives today, that we'd be like, that's awesome. How cool is it that God would work throughout all of history, this message of hope that would translate throughout time and throughout culture. That's pretty amazing that the message of Jesus applies and meets needs of somebody in a remote part of Mongolia and at the same time meets my needs here today. That should cause our hearts to worship as we think about the sovereignty and the plan of God, right? You think about that and you're like, whoa, that's cool. God, you're working throughout all of history. I believe in you. I need you. Especially, I would like to say to you, those of you who are not sure where you stand with Jesus today, if you're not sure if you're a Christ follower, I'd like to say that there's an invitation here for you today to make the most important decision of your life. In the words of Paul, from what we just read, he said, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. And so my question to you, if that's the headspace you find yourself in, what's causing you not to repent? What's the barrier to you repenting and saying, God, I need you? What's holding you back? If we're really gut level honest this morning, if you're not completely surrendered to Jesus, there's something that you're putting your faith, your trust in other than God. And you know what that is called? An idol. You're struggling with the same thing. Anything other than Jesus will ultimately let you down. Anything other than Christ will ultimately not bring you satisfaction or fulfillment. And so today, just hear me imploring with you, imploring with myself, even as I'm reminded as my own tendency towards idolatry, is that nothing satisfies outside of Jesus. And we need to repent and just say, God, I need you today. If you're not a Christ follower and have questions about what that means, please come and talk to myself or to Nick or one of our, our guys that'll be around the room praying with people here in a little bit. We'd love to talk with you some more about what that means. Maybe the person who brought you along. The second purpose of our conversation today is to remind us, those of us who are Christ followers, of our duty, our our calling as ambassadors of the grace of the gospel, to remind us that we are to look and ask God to stir our hearts for the people around us to ask God to help us to engage people with love and relevance, to ask God to help us to ultimately engage people with the specifics of Jesus and his life. And so I want to ask you this morning, I want to again ask myself, am I open to God doing this? Is this happening in my life? Have I thought about the context in which God has uniquely placed me? Have you thought about the places that God's uniquely placed you? Guys, you need to hear this this morning. You are in places where I will never be, in your circles of friends, with your family, with your coworkers, and you are called to be the light in that environment. And so I really want to encourage you this morning to just ask yourself, if you're a Christian, ask yourself, am I being faithful to be a gospel witness? Am I being faithful to contextualize the message of Jesus in the places that he's put me? I want you to just think about that and say, God, would you help me to allow your Holy Spirit to stir my heart and then lead me through this process.
Can we agree to do that together this morning? Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful for the opportunity that all of us have for the gospel to come and to impact our hearts and in our lives. God, I'm so grateful that the message of who you are and what you've done doesn't just wasn't a, isn't a stale old message from 2,000 years ago, but it's a relevant one that meets right in the middle of our context here in Aust- South Austin today. Thank you for that. God, may, as we think about that and the, the, how amazing the gospel and the message of Jesus and his love for us is for each and every one of us, I pray that our hearts would be stirred to worship to be like, yeah, God, you're amazing for working out a plan of salvation where the message of the gospel applies throughout all time, throughout all cultures. But God, I also pray that we be stirred to move and to act and respond. That God, we be stirred to be used by you in whatever context we find ourselves. Some of those are hard contexts. Some of us work in places where it's hard to, to be the light of Christ. Some of us have families where it's really hard to be the light of Christ. But God, would you stir our hearts for the people in those places? And would you use us in a way where we point, faithfully point people towards you? We can't do this alone. It's only by your strength. It's only by your power. And so today, together as a church, we submit to you. Thank you. Amen.